0: Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best
1: biome. I'm Nicole. I'm Alan. And I'm Rachel. And I get to talk about stuff this week, so. Wow. Um, I probably bit off more than I can chew, as usual, so. (laughs) Let's, uh... Talk about Africa today, (laughs) just just the whole continent. Actually, yes. Okay, the whole continent's worth of savanna habitats. The African savanna biome is the topic today. Wow, Um, made possible by one study that was published (laughs) by uh, or in the New Phytologist in 2018, um, which was a multi-government collaboration, basically assessing how. African savannas work and uh how they are affected by humans and how to mitigate those changes. And I was like, holy smokes, there is so much crammed into this one analysis and review and it does such a good job of like giving an overview of the things affecting this entire continent's worth of ecology that I was like, <laughs> why don't we just do like a review of this one freaking paper and I can tell you all the cool things I learned from this one paper. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, so the name of this paper is called Human Impacts in African Savannas Are Mediated by Plant Functional Traits. It was published, like I said, in 2018. Uh, some of the published authors include uh, Colin Osborne, Tristan Charles Domineux, and uh, some other people. So <laughs> that, that would be the et al. of the citation, you know. The point of this paper, really, because I said it was a multi-government sort of enterprise, was to present ideas and perspectives on African savannas that they discussed at a meeting of, like, UK and South African scientists in 2015. And the reason is because African savannas, like so many other places, are undergoing some, like, really rapid changes at a pretty continental scale as humans encroach on natural habitats and stuff but unlike forested biomes uh people aren't really paying attention to the ecology of savannas specifically Mm. and the things that people tend to use in like tropical forest ecology don't really apply well in savannas and yet like people are still using those so You know, this like also fits in super well with the whole premise of our podcast and our organization, which is that grasslands just need better PR and better information. And that's like precisely what these researchers and the authors of this paper were pointing out, which is that like, hey, as is often true in savannas, (laughs) um, if we're going to avoid an environmental crisis in these grassland landscapes, we need to understand how they work. Please, dear God, people listen to us. We should cut down more trees, basically. Um, Mm. Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, But
2: not all of the trees.
1: No, but like a lot of them can go. That's fine. (laughs) You know. uh, Again, savannas. So, you know, they should have some trees. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. The authors of the paper pointed out that efforts to avoid an ecosystem collapse are pretty much disrupted or straight up blocked by, quote, inadequate understanding of the ecological mechanisms driving observed changes, unquote. And they're also stopped by, quote, misunderstanding the diversity among Savannah types in their resistance and resilience to change. So basically, the authors, like the reason they wrote this paper, they're calling for one more research into specific areas that would increase our understanding of these ecosystems and how they actually function especially like on a local level because there's so much diversity we're looking at a continental scale right there's like so much diversity in that continent <laughs> that like we really need to understand the local uh systems but number two they're also calling for better policies for developing like management strategies at a local level because we do understand a lot about how these ecosystems function and often That understanding does not translate into public policy because there's like a block in learning there and people just don't understand how savannas work. So, yeah, that's what they're doing with this paper. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm super freaking excited to tell you some things I learned about (laughs) savannas in Africa. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs)
2: Great. I can't
1: get away from savannas, guys. It's killing me. Actually, fun fact, um, I got onto this topic because I was trying to figure out where grasses, how grasses became, like why are grasses a thing? Then I got that oh. a weird rabbit hole that became its own episode. So nice. we'll we'll oh. somehow touch onto that later. I promise. <laughs> cool. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. A couple prerequisites to this like whole idea that I think that we need to discuss at the beginning because it was important to the authors of the paper. And honestly, like no shade to the au- a little bit of shade to the authors. <laughs> I feel like they didn't really describe this premise well in the paper itself. And so I was reading this paper and I was like. I don't understand what you mean by, like, ecosystem services. Like, you really glossed over that. So basically, the whole point of their paper is hinged on this, like, ecological philosophy topic, which is, like, basically a two-part argument, okay? Number one, these savannah ecosystems provide essential services to the people who live there. Number two, in order for people to continue living here and to support a growing population the ecosystem must be preserved because these services are essential to the continuation of human life in these regions.
2: Correct.
0: That, yeah.
1: Yeah. Th- those are some big <laughs> stances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, it's like that obviously applies to all ecosystems. Yeah. And I want to say also there's obviously other reasons and like philosophical and ethical points of view on why conservation matters. But, like, I think when you're talking about, like, especially government policies, you kind of have to talk about economics. Mm -hmm. Arguing for governments especially, I think uh, people who have, like, human concerns at the center of their focus and aren't really super educated on environmental concerns. Like, it's very easy to say, like, who cares? Let's just plow it all up. Like, it's not really benefiting us directly. So some of the services I we cannot understate how important savannah wildlife tourism is and hunting mm-hmm. because that contributes literally hundreds of millions of dollars to African economies and the thing about this is you know this really diverse set of both plants and animals that exist in Africa are endemic to that continent. They can't be found anywhere else, and like especially you know charismatic megafauna, like this is a f- huge freaking deal. like this is basically africa's entire p r system, right? Yeah. um they are only found in those regions and are central to that entire economic system. So like that's a really direct reason why the ecosystem matters to African economies. Um, Some of the other things are like provision of water and food. So, you know, a, a healthy ecosystem is providing the correct amount of water resources and food resources for people, whether that's like supporting grazing livestock agriculture, you know, maintaining climactic conditions that allow you to have the rainfall you need to produce all of the food and water that you have. It's it's a pretty central thing, um, especially with water management. So that's huge. Medicines, grazing for livestock, timber and grass for construction, and fuel, wood and charcoal are all listed as being of huge significance. So in total, that's an annual value exceeding $9 billion dollars. That the savannas are bringing to African economies.
2: Dang, yeah, that's huge.
1: So, switching to the ecology of African savannas, we are looking specifically at like hum- human impacts, human caused impacts to these places. So, there are four main threats that are directly caused by humans to these ecosystems. Those things are not going to be super surprising, probably, but they are land clearing. Altered disturbance, so that's referring to both grazing and fire, which are, of course, main drivers of savanna ecology. They need those forms of disturbance. Humans change that pressure all the time. Rising CO2, which we'll mm-hmm. get to, and general climate change, which is impacting precipitation levels and other climactic factors that are completely outside of, like, biotic factors. Sure. So yeah, for people who are listening who are not super into ecology, basically this ecosystem is like an entire web of both like biotic, that's like plants and animals and stuff, and abiotic, which is everything else, (laughs) factors. And pushing on any of these nodes by humans on that web can have really dramatic and sometimes unpredictable changes. And uh, this is a process of trying to parse that out. Um, So we've talked a of course, about fire grazing and woody encroachment and stuff like that a lot on this podcast. But one of the things that I found super eye-opening here was carbon dioxide, CO2. Um, And here's the direct quote from the paper. Quote, the fate of the African savanna biome may be bound intrinsically to rising atmospheric CO2 in ways that other biomes are not. Hmm.
2: Okay, why is that?
1: (laughs) Um it has to do with plants
2: uh-huh okay yeah okay okay Okay.
1: it has to do with c3 versus c4 plants uh-huh. okay, okay so i'm oh Nicole, shaking your blast head in the past uh, yeah right high school uh-huh. biology okay yeah um can does anybody here feel even like a little bit confident in trying to describe what the difference is i have i will help you but yes
2: I, ugh, <laughs> I don't know it. Okay. So it has to do with, um, Oh God. Does it have something to do about like, um, or like, like a big fundamental difference is like what time are they actually doing their gas exchanges? Like aren't one of them is like mm. primarily more nocturnal, one of them is more diurnal? Yes,
1: that is okay. there, so there are actually three different um, types of plants and and I should probably say like first of all that it's like a photosynthesis thing. Like mm-hmm. C three and C four listeners is we're talking about photosynthesis and different ways that plants do that. So there's a third one called CAM. I'm not going to try to pretend like I know what that stands for. Um, But that's the one you're talking about, Alan. That's like desert plants tend to do that. And they have like a special adaptation where they can like basically separate the light part of photosynthesis from the breathing part Mm -hmm. so that they can like breathe at night when they're not losing water, basically.
2: Guys, I went to school to study (laughs) birds and (laughs) mammals. Okay. (laughs) I don't know a lot of plant stuff. Hey, yeah. that's and, so fun! You know, I'm doing my best.
1: You are doing way better than yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot of people
2: would. Nicole, you probably you, what 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 do you think it is? Because I think I feel like you actually know. <laughs> yeah, come on! Nicole. I've already exposed myself as being an idiot, so I would like you to. Please, <laughs> please so, actually tell us. <laughs>
0: I the only thing that was sticking out to me was the time of day too. So that's oh, all I shoot. got. Yeah. yeah. The, okay. the, if I,
1: to be straightforward with you guys, that's also the thing that I remembered. Uh-huh. So I had to really research this because <laughs> right. again, this paper glossed over that. And I was like, mm-hmm. hold on, I feel like I need to take like a refresher course here. Yeah.
0: Okay. What were you going to say? the only plant-specific class that I took wasn't even plant-specific. It was plant-and-animal interactions. Oh, so, no.
1: Ooh, AKA okay.
0: insects primarily,
1: so... Okay. okay. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I was a huge nerd about this stuff, and I used to tutor people on photosynthesis, so I felt embarrassed that I couldn't remember, but I also <laughs> could not remember, and I had to go look it up. <laughs> <Okay>. Nice.
2: <laughs> right on. Um, it's like, okay, so what what is what is this, the C? Is it is it carbon? Carbon, yeah. Okay, so is it like a... It just like they're, it has something to do with like the way they package up.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, sugars or something. I had a problem when I was researching this, which is that I got like very technical and then I realized that is not what anybody wants to hear is like the (laughs) chemistry reactions of like what's happening here. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. So, so here's, here's what I parsed out. So basically, super, super basic photosynthesis only works well. When there's a high concentration of carbon dioxide inside the plant. So, refresher course for people who aren't, like, super into biology. Carbon dioxide is what plants breathe in and they tend to exhale oxygen. So, like, they they want the CO2. That's their jam, right? Mm-hmm. They need a lot of CO2 around so that photosynthesis works. Because if there's too much O2 around, if there's too much oxygen around, the chemical reaction goes stupid and it doesn't actually work. <laughs> so like that's how that's how photosynthesis itself works no matter what process you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Is that it needs a high concentration of CO2. So here's here's where maybe there wouldn't be a high concentration of CO2 in the plant and that's when they're like holding their breath basically. This is very much an analogy and not how it actually <laughs> happens, but plants basically breathe during the day for the most part. They like open their little pore cells called stomata, right? And this wastes water because then like they lose their little waterproofing. They're covered in like little pores and they sweat out water or whatever. Um, so sometimes they hold their breath basically and close that up to save water like at night or when it's super hot, they'll hold their breath. Mm-hmm. So then when plants are holding their breath, that's when they've gone through all the CO2 and oxygen starts to build up in their bodies. So think about... That like humans, like if we held our breath, we'd have more carbon dioxide in our blood. So, sense. so the majority of plants are C3 plants. It's like 85% of all plants are C3. They don't have any special adaptations. It's just regular photosynthesis. And basically when they close up their pores at night to stop breathing, oxygen will build up in their cells and they waste a whole bunch of energy doing accidental bad chemistry because they don't have enough CO2. Here's where C4 plants are different. So they have a special adaptation that guarantees that under any condition, the plant always has a high concentration of CO2 because it basically puts that whole chemical reaction that can go AWOL into like a panic room off to the side <laughs> where no oxygen can get in, but then they waste a lot of energy like shuttling the carbon dioxide in, in and out of the panic room, if that makes sense. Okay. No matter what the plant is doing, there's always a high concentration of carbon dioxide. They're not wasting energy. They're like super efficient. And only 3% of all vascular plants use this type of respiration. They tend to be abundant in the heat and they are less abundant in the cold, probably because spending the extra energy to like have a panic room, basically for this chemical reaction, is worth it in hot conditions where you're more likely to wish you had
2: it. Right, okay.
1: Okay, are you tracking me so far? I feel like this is a lot of, like, I tried so hard to, like, make this simplified. Uh No, yeah,
2: okay, I get it, I get it. So Um, so it is
0: more energy efficient to have this kind of
1: photosynthesis. um, In hot conditions, in, like... um, the tropics for example where it's mm-hmm. like hot all of the time mm-hmm. that's where uh it becomes really beneficial to use up the extra energy to do this type of respiration so like the plant is spending energy to get things moved into a panic room they would also be spending energy on wasted chemical reactions that don't need to happen if they didn't have the the panic room basically it's it's like a a scale right and In hot environments, it becomes worth it to spend the extra energy to make the panic room because you're saving in so many other areas of your photosynthesis. Okay. Okay. So it's still a net gain
0: even though you are spending energy to do that. Okay.
1: And so basically that's why we tend to see a lot more C4 plants in really hot environments and they tend to decrease in frequency in like temperate environments. The reason this matters in the African biome is that this biome is dominated by the C4 grasses in a way that other biomes are not. Like here in the Great Plains, we have both C3 and C4 grasses. We tend to like refer to them as cool season and warm season grasses Mm -hmm. and they tend to grow in cool season and warm season because they're differently adapted in that way Mm -hmm. but here's like an interesting quote as to why that is so the the authors state quote c4 grassy vegetation first expanded globally in a low co2 atmosphere five to ten million years ago an event linked to altered regional climates and fire regimes and the colonization of africa by bovid meso herbivores so basically africa came to be the africa that we imagine during a period of low atmospheric carbon dioxide and because there was low atmospheric carbon these plants that were really good at saving up the carbon and like keeping a high concentration of carbon dioxide in their cells even when maybe there wasn't in the atmosphere they were able to dominate
2: sorry that was how long ago
1: five to ten million years ago
2: Five to ten million. Okay, yeah. wow. Yeah. All right.
1: So not like dinosaur levels. Like Right. Um, this is where I like overlapped my like, where did grasses come from <laughs> concept. But like dinosaurs never ate grasses. Grasses uh-uh. came later. And C4 grasses began to dominate in the African region in that time period when there was low atmospheric carbon. And that's when they really excelled and like began to dominate the globe and became really prevalent in the tropics where like to this day the heat conditions make their form of photosynthesis still a benefit. So yeah, I thought that was freaking fascinating. So this matters today because C3 plants, AKA most plants on the planet, are really, really susceptible to increases in carbon dioxide. So we understand that carbon dioxide won't really have like a huge impact on C4 plants because like they're already good at being efficient with carbon. Whereas C3 grasses like are very inefficient at using their carbon. So increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide basically fertilizes every other plant on the planet (laughs) and like makes them super, super efficient at growing and spreading and doing plant things, which gives them an edge over C4 plants. That's why the African savanna biome is severely impacted in a way that other biomes aren't because like C4 grasses like had their origins there and Mm -hmm. dominated there in a way that like created this landscape and so with all of the issues that we're seeing like woody encroachment and stuff like that's probably only going to be exacerbated by global carbon dioxide increasing Mm -hmm. because like the the grasses are going to have an even harder time fighting back against woody encroachment okay potentially not good yeah, okay, that was a lot of explanation to arrive at that conclusion. I could have just said that, I guess, but I thought it was fun to go down <laughs> a little, like, bio-organic chem thing. I am so sorry. To no. I
2: think it's it um, good. It's important. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's going on in all that grass, you know? What's it doing all day? Yeah. It's doing stuff. Oh, it's... it's got things going on inside of it. No, it's, it's doing does.
1: stuff. It sure is. It's
2: just keeping it secret. <laughs> but now we know. Mm-hmm
1: oh man um yeah so basically co2 is like probably going to have a pretty like direct impact on african savannas becoming like a closed canopy forest yeah fantastic great oh, cut man. down trees sometimes <laughs> in this instance you're doing great well now i'm embarrassed at how much time i spent on chemistry when i thought i was doing a really good uh, job of explaining you, it but if it's you fine. want to re-explain it shorter
0: like you can yeah, that's the whole it. fit, it's part do about doing podcasts
2: it? C4 plants spend extra energy in order to protect the chemical reaction of yeah. photosynthesis. Yeah. C3 plants don't. They just do it passively and it's wasteful.
1: Yes. And so they're going to do better on their own right. just by there being more carbon dioxide around because they're like, blah, 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 who cares yes. about our chemical reactions? Blah, blah, blah. Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's like if you were taking a spoon <laughs> and you were like f- trying to flip rice into your mouth. Yeah. Okay. It's like a C, like a C4 plant is just like trying, or C3 plant is just like trying to flip like loose grains of rice into its face. (laughs) Okay. Uh Okay. Uh But a C4 plant has like, ooh, I'm going to wrap this rice in like a little seaweed, like a little nori wrap. Okay. So then it's like, I got a little bundle of rice. Uh Uh-huh. So that's like boom. I spent extra time to uh-huh. wrap my rice in nori. Uh-huh. Now I'm gonna flip the like the whole like pack into my face. <laughs> Guys, we should Efficient. really
1: write chemistry courses. We I should. think this yeah. is really good. But yeah, if
2: you replace that rice with like a hand, like a like a shovel,
1: uh-huh.
2: and a shovel rice into your face, you're more gonna rice, get rice. You're gonna get rice yeah. anyway.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: The rice is the CO two, and it's killing the planet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think that's a great, great,
0: great
1: explanation. Thank you.
0: All right.
2: <laughs>
1: Holy moly. So like, yeah, that's that's why carbon dioxide is specifically affecting African savannas. Um, I do want to kind of define really quickly like what the concept of degradation in these savanna landscapes even looks like to begin with because the paper does that and People need to know that, even though some of it is stuff we've talked on before, I will try to focus on new information for podcast listeners. But of course, obviously, it's complex. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up.
2: Another complex thing.
1: Another complex Whoa. thing. I mean, it's a continent, you guys. Uh-oh. So, I think the main issue is woody encroachment in mm-hmm. African savannas. So. Uh, I think it's important for like listeners hearing this to keep in mind that like when we're talking about woody encroachment, like that equates to habitat loss for animals that live there. Like we're we're talking about habitats that are changing into something else, which means that those habitats are being lost, even though they might still exist and still be like nature reserves or like whatever undeveloped land. It is still lost habitat if they're something they're not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. For sure. So like we haven't really studied the impacts of tropical woody encroachment on like climactic things like weather patterns and soil chemistry and I bring that up because that is very well known about forests being deforested Mm -hmm. and I think this again ties into like how we tend to wrap any landscape with trees into being a forest it's that like deforestation continues to be the kind of go-to environmental fear that we have as humans for what it looks like to destroy the environment and like to the point where we haven't even really fully researched what forestation or like uh woody encroachment would do mm. to That's degrade the savannah yeah,
2: yeah you're right yeah for sure i mean that makes sense because it's like yeah i mean when we were kids like that was the number one, like, you know, the environmental, like, yeah. panic was like, oh, you know, clearing the Amazon or cutting down old growth forests. Yeah. And, yeah. like, you don't really think about, like, there are other ways that the plant community can change.
1: Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, there are some savannas where, you know, planting trees may be a solution. But that is absolutely not true in most African savannas. And... Like, a really, I think a really good example of, like, what you're talking about, Alan, um, has to do with elephants. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I've attended, like, seminars or, like, lectures on elephants. And, like, I know even the Cedric County Zoo here, where we are locally, has done lectures on elephants because, you know, we have exhibits and stuff. And in Africa, like, megafauna, like, elephants and stuff are, like, a really important element in pushing back plants because they're rough on yeah. trees and plants and I think that really also makes African savannas unique on a global scale because like nobody else really has things like elephants that are literally pushing around the trees mm-hmm. um obviously there are elephants in other parts of the world too I'm not really familiar with them but I think like Asian elephants live in forests right yeah so it's a different landscape and a different in- interaction with the plants African elephants, freaking destroy trees all the time. Mm -hmm. And, like, I have some really distinct memories of attending seminars where people are talking about, like, how horrible it is that elephants are destroying trees. And, you know, again, this is a nuanced topic. So, you know, it is definitely true that if there are too many of any big destructive animal or any type of animal at all Mm -hmm. in a small area, like, they can have a completely disproportionate impact on the environment than they would otherwise but like there's never a nuanced discussion about it it's always like oh man the elephants destroy so many trees and that's so terrible but it's like that's what they're supposed to do (laughs) they're supposed to be doing that and like the trees that live around them are adapted to that and Survive it really freaking well and bounce back really freaking well, but like we all collectively lose our minds when we see an elephant destroying a tree, even though that's literally what they're all supposed to be doing—is being destroyed <laughs> and destroying things. Like that's uh-huh. what they're supposed to do.
2: Yeah.
1: Ugh. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about this. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, that and that sums up a lot of people's attitudes toward fire as well. Yeah. Like people mm-hmm. think, like, oh, like if this field full of red cedars were to like i don't know burn to the ground it'd be real bad you know but it's like well no i'd be okay that's that's what they
1: want to happen like like, they're craving the flame they're like please burn me like i want the fire to lick me (laughs) to the ground right
0: (laughs) i don't know if they want to be taken to the ground but yeah well you know what i mean Uh (laughs) they want to be stubble
1: um (laughs) so um yeah. And so so I point this out because like it does seem pretty obvious to us because we talk about it all the time and we're like grasslands people, but it's really very much not apparent still to lay people. Yeah. And even the authors pointed out that talking about removing trees is controversial. So here's a quote they had about this. Uh quote, "It is vital that forest and landscape restoration programs develop clear criteria for identifying degraded areas and developing appropriate restoration strategies." In the case of savannas, degraded by woody plant encroachment, these appropriate strategies may controversially include tree removal. And, like, we have to define these things because otherwise we as humanity just assume, like, trees equals good. Yeah. 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 And screw the elephants. They're too mean to trees. (laughs) Yes. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
2: Okay. Mm-hmm. No, yeah,
1: this this brings
0: to mind all the like plant a tree programs and stuff where like a lot of times, I mean, not every single program, but a lot of them are not only planting monocultures, which are never helpful, no. um, but a lot of times they're planting like straight up non-native trees mm-hmm. into
1: like a grassland. And yeah. it's like, Oof. it's supposed to be a grassland. Please stop planting trees. Like, how long ago was it that um, the state began planting Russian olive trees around everywhere in Kansas? Like, yeah. why was that ever a thing? They changed soil chemistry now. Like yeah. that's a big
2: deal. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It is weird. It's a weird choice. Yeah. Yep.
1: Cool. So you know that's all I've really got for um those like defining degradation. It it's it's there's a lot more complexity to it. But like on the continental scale, woody encroachment is the biggest issue. Sure. So um the next little section that I wanted to talk about that I thought was cool was um, the actual functional traits of plants in this landscape and the ways that they mediate all the different responses of the savanna to these human impacts because it's another piece of the puzzle right like we're trying to conserve a landscape in order to do that we have to understand like how are plants responding in different ways to different things and it's also like a lot of cool plant adaptations and it's like that's neat i didn't know that was a thing how cool. neat is that what nicole why are I'm, you laughing i'm sure the
0: listeners can hear it but rachel's like dancing
1: behind the mic right now Thank it's you. hilarious <laughs> i'm so i i literally wrote like a little emoji into my text here which i never do um, <laughs> was it a dance emoji <laughs> <laughs> okay 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 so the sort of traits we're talking about here include like defenses against herbivores because like Having herbivores around is a thing humans do, and also the wildlife does, whatever. Um, Resistance to fire, nitrogen-fixing and fungal relationships, etc., which, honestly, I skipped over because I don't really get soil, (laughs) and I'm not really, like, interested in talking about it. Do
2: you not care
0: about
1: fungus? I do.
2: Dude, mm. dude, we'll get into it. Okay. Oh, no.
1: Well, I guess... Like, I'm just not, I don't know enough about it. I've never had like a soil class. I uh-huh. don't understand. It. There's so much there. And I just, my brain has not absorbed anything that has to do with soil ever in my life. I'm not about to try starting now from scratch <laughs> as a footnote to this topic. Uh-huh. So. It's okay. Thank you. We'll for, talk about it. Thank you canopy architecture so like how close together are things growing and how bushy are they blah 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 uh and like whether they can sprout out a whole bunch of clones and stuff like those are all different like traits that plants have that like change how they respond to things around them very straightforward and what's kind of cool about like these continental wide things is that we can kind of map out like which dominant plants there are in certain regions and then like make predictions about how those regions will resist change or fight back against change, etc. which will help us to map out like how our responses should be different in local environments. So that's pretty neat. And like we do that by literally mapping out what the functional traits of those plants are against like their abundance and maybe some like climate factors. And so we can have like, they they had the authors a map of different regions based on their plant structure and their responses to different changes and stuff. Like we can map this out. It's pretty Mm -hmm. freaking cool stuff. And we can also leverage those things to do good conservation works. That's pretty (laughs) neat. (laughs) So felling trees and cutting them down is another human impact. And what's cool about African savanna trees is that they are super, super, super resilient to damage Again, because unlike most places, they evolved alongside freaking elephants and stuff. So like they're used to being destroyed. If it's chronic, that can be bad and can lead to the death of the tree. But they're pretty good at bouncing back. For example, elephants. They will strip bark off of a tree, pull off branches, completely topple the entire trunk of a tree. Mm -hmm. And the trees are like, all right, (laughs) (laughs)
2: all right yeah
1: i'll just like i'll grow back i guess like thanks elephant like
2: (laughs) (laughs) do they say thank you after all that i don't
1: think so because they can't speak
2: yeah Yeah. their
1: stomata aren't lips but that would be crazy if they were (laughs) be terrifying (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm picturing a real fever dream of an animation right now (laughs) Um, (laughs) okay so um basically the presence of these giant herbivores mean that plants are super good at bouncing back from this stuff, which is really important because it means like, as far as like trying to restore places, I don't know, the work's cut out for us in in this sense anyway. So here's a quote from the paper I thought was cool. In combination with the consumption of seedlings, damage caused by large mammals can reduce woody plant cover in African savannas more than tenfold because they have uh, such a destructive habit, especially with saplings. So because of this, uh, another quote, uh, here, biomass and biodiversity can rapidly recover after short periods under cultivation. This is important because the fastest net losses of woody plant cover in African savannas are occurring in the Mayombo savannas distributed in wet subtropical climates south of the equator, which is, uh, they described as one of the places where plants are especially adapted to bouncing back from mega herbivores, just kicking them to the ground. So, like, that's really handy because the places where we are losing tree cover, and that might be a problem, it's a pretty narrow region, Mm -hmm. but, like, the trees there are really good at bouncing back, and it would not take much effort on our part to get it back to functionality. Cool. Cool. Um, The other thing is herbivory, which is different from just getting kicked to the ground uh, by an elephant because that's just getting eaten or whatever. So, uh, quote, woody plants in savannas resist browsing via a range of physical and chemical defenses cage architecture, spinescence, and small leaves restrict or prevent mammalian herbivores from accessing foliage, and chemical defenses reduce leaf digestibility or make the foliage toxic, end quote. And what are those weird words that you said?
2: Yeah, you just said spinescence, like it was a normal word (laughs) that comes up a lot. And
1: caging or something? Cage architecture? Okay, this is actually pretty freaking cool. And um, cage architecture is basically like uh plants that are like god i'm going to get eaten Mm -hmm. if i'm a delicious sapling (laughs) Mm -hmm. so they they basically grow as a sapling to be like a cage of just inaccessible grossness and spines or it like depends on the plant but like just like a cage around like the juicy parts (laughs) (laughs) so that like they can't get eaten it's harder to eat them it's not worth it and then they can survive to adulthood maybe (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay
2: okay <laughs> Okay. stepped on by an elephant
0: yeah, yeah. Or they're yeah. less likely to yeah,
1: right. yeah um yeah. and this is different from like uh, uh the other type that we're probably used to seeing is called like uh, hang on let me find it it's pole architecture yeah pole architecture which is where they just grow straight up like a pole yeah yeah okay and okay. that is more common in areas affected by fire because the tree is like racing to get as tall as possible so that it can escape flames and not mm-hmm. get top killed by fires. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then,
0: uh, sp- spines- spinescence. Yep. Can't even say it. Oh, that just means being spiny.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Right. The state of being spiny. Scientists because like to use
1: really confusing words and it's pretty outrageous. It's a little unnecessary you, yeah.
2: sometimes, isn't it? Yeah.
1: It could be a good trivia word though. Is that That's true. Real benefit. It's that a good trivia today. word today. Yeah
2: spinescence it's
1: good stuff yeah so basically there's like tons of spiny species that exist across the continent and um we see continental scale um a pretty big difference in like dry savannas and more wet savannas so in dry open savannas there tend to be less frequent fires and so plants there tend to be more like Uh, I got to protect myself from the freaking elephants. And so they will put more of their energy into beating herbivory. Whereas in wetter savannas, uh, they're more concerned about fire just because of the way that the grasses are growing in those environments and other factors. Uh, They're more likely to get burned up in more wet savannas. So those plants are like, I'm going to shoot up like a pole and try to beat the fire and put more effort into my fire resistance
2: interesting that the places with more precipitation would be more concerned about fire you yeah, have plants right? that are more fire resilient than in dry savannas which you would think are like yeah. a huge tender box mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but that makes sense when you consider that grasses are a plant in these environments too and mm-hmm. that a lot more precipitation is allowing for a lot like bigger mass and volume of grasses in the environment so not only are some grasses in dry savannas resistant to fire altogether um they tend to take a long time to accumulate biomass because of the way that they're growing Mm -hmm. and these guys had like a whole section on the grass structures and stuff i think it's pretty straightforward and self-explanatory so i'm not going to spend like a lot of time going on it but it is true that like in the wetter savannas like they tend to be like Big bushy canopies—they—they they, of grass—they mm-hmm. tend to be a lot more flammable, and um, so the fires there tend to be much more intense. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. It's accumulating yeah. like f- uh, fuel much more
2: quickly. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about this is that we do have like a pretty clear breaking point climate-wise that will control for like where certain plants and ecosystems are even able to exist. Versus not exist And that threshold is like rainfall. So we can say, hey, as long as these savannas are getting this much rainfall, we can expect to see plants doing these things. Mm-hmm. If we get below that threshold, we expect them to be like, not as flammable, uh, kicking elephants, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, focusing more on herbivory. So we, we know what to expect based on that climate factor. And that's going to really help us be like, Ooh, how do we like be climate change yeah 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 yeah. okay um i think it's fire so just as a refresher for people who don't listen to every episode plants can have thick corky bark special buds they can have below ground energy stores which we actually saw before in the brazilian savannas with woody plants there they had like you know underground like stems which might silly and brain that only grasses could do. No, trees do that all the time and shrubs too. Um, and I guess in Africa, it can get really intense. Like they can straight up create uh, what were described as underground trees, underground okay. trees or geoziles, mm-hmm. which is basically an entire underground network of woody stems and roots. And when everything gets killed by a fire, the plant is like, who cares? My entire like tree is underground. So I'll just mm-hmm. blow, blow, sprout back up. Geosile. The other thing that's cool about plants is that, you know, they tend to change over their lifetimes and their growth habits, depending on how frequent fires are. So if, for example, there's an area that really hasn't had a lot of fires, the plants probably haven't been putting as much effort into their underground systems as, say, a tree that's been burned every year. So that means, hey, if this place hasn't been burned in a long time, and there's too much woody encroachment, like maybe a fire would be slightly more effective there because the plants are like, oops, what's this? <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of adapted to it, but I didn't think this would happen. Hmm. Um, that's pretty neat. Drought, drought kills savanna trees, which makes sense because in general, trees require more water than grasses. So they're like, oops, I'm dead when there's <laughs> drought. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and what I thought was cool was that like in African savannas, the main way that trees avoid uh drought being an issue is by just killing all of their leaves. And so the main like way that they are affected besides just dying is how early their leaves emerge and how soon they kill them off because a lot of them are deciduous and it's based on water availability.
2: Oh, interesting. So during like the it, because like during the wet season, the yeah, they all leaves for days. Season. Yeah, in
1: the dry season, they're like, oops, I don't want to lose my water. So like, (laughs) screw these leaves. And then of course, there's rising carbon dioxide, which is like, holy cow, we don't even know fully how rising carbon dioxide, like plants are adapted to that or would change with that. you know, the thing about rising carbon dioxide, too, is that it has like a weird indirect relationship with plant water relationships because of the way that heat is influencing photosynthesis right so there's a lot of factors involved there there have been a couple of experiments with two african uh, mimosoid savanna trees those are the like plants that have like firecracker flowers you know Mm -hmm. um like mimosas and That demonstrated that there are strong positive effects on increased atmospheric CO2 on their stuff. Like they grow faster, they store energy faster, and all of this means that they bounce back way quicker after fire or herbivore damage. So basically saplings' survival is definitely increased to a measurable degree based on what those trees are experiencing in savannas. But unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of information overall on this specific landscape and these specific sets of environmental like conditions, right? So we have information on like how trees respond to CO2 and how grasses respond to CO2 and stuff, but they don't really take into context things like the soil nutrients of these landscapes. Because remember, I skipped that whole section, but that was important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. In ways that make it more complex, which is what I want you to understand. Yes. All we know is that these... Different hypothesized effects of carbon dioxide on woody plants has the potential to really change both like fuel characteristics of these landscapes for fire and competition for water and nutrients. So that would have implications for basically every sort of like human thing we can change, whether it's fire or grazing or whatever. And we just don't know yet. So let's do some research, guys. Yay. <laughs> So how do human beings leverage these plant traits to do good environmental work? So like there's basically three potential interventions that we can take action on, urging more research, obviously. But um, the things we have control over really easily are fire, large-bodied mammals, and maintaining connected and unfragmented savanna landscapes. So with fire, obviously... We can change the frequency and timing of fires. We have control over that. Uh, And woody encroachment can be just flat out erased this way. So we should be doing this. Um, Except in order for it to even be effective, the prescribed fire has to actually match historical fire regimes and be, like, effective for that region. Mm -hmm. So this also has to be timed alongside, like, grazing management because, of course, The grazing that's happening will impact the fuel for the fire and how intense or effective they're even able to be. We also know that in low rainfall savannas, fire might not work to push back woody encroachment if that's an issue. Um, Because in these environments, again, grasses accumulate more slowly. Some grasses aren't even very flammable. And so they recommend in those regions, maybe delay fire until the dry season, which is not really how most African land managers are doing things right now. I think that's also true here in North America. We tend to do all of our burning in the spring. So there are cases to be made in a lot of places for changing the seasonality of our fires depending on local needs, which I think is cool. Yeah. my favorite additional strategy that relates to fire that I thought was pretty freaking cool was intentionally creating intense tree crown fires,
0: Ooh. Uh,
1: which I was like, whoa, that's a thing. But, you know, um, I guess these occur naturally in like really high wind, hot, dry conditions and like... Basically the idea is to create like big firestorms and like when the leaves are all crunchy at the dry season, you know, you just mm-hmm. set the whole top of the tree on fire nice. and then you're top killing like a massive canopy and that can be super effective in just yeah. destroying a severely encroached area.
2: Mm-hmm. It does sound fun. Right? S- sounds dangerous. It is super dangerous. <laughs> I
1: guess people do that in North America too. Like they they referenced a specifically North American like uh, land management strategy, which i had not well maybe that's i'm suddenly remembering that there are forests in north america that like need fire like conifer forests and stuff Mm -hmm. i didn't read that study but all i know is that we do it here too apparently and that delights me for some reason i hate fire but this delights me Yeah, yeah 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 um
2: you hate fire Uh, personally not as an ecological oh of course yeah it's
1: really important as a tool it scares the heck out of me (laughs) mm -hmm. on a personal level (laughs) it should
2: it probably should i
1: will never again participate in a prescribed burn my first experience was too traumatic (laughs) it was a lot it was a lot for me i think it was a lot for a few people who were also into fire Mm -hmm. even though it was all perfectly under control for the record it was never got out of control but it was like pretty hot for a minute like Mm -hmm. i didn't even burn all the hair off the back of my hand like i did last time oh my god (laughs) stresses (laughs) me out anyway there is like a downside which is that you know if there are forests nearby um they're really hard to stop (laughs) like the big you know i guess you can do other fire management things like making a break or whatever but Mm -hmm. that's kind of rude if you're like dealing with a forest i guess it's hard enough to convince people to chop down savannah trees you know let alone true things next to forests Mm -hmm. so like you know maybe only do that in places where there aren't big national forests or something and then you can kill all the trees
2: yeah. Yeah. Totally.
0: Yeah. I mean.
1: Yeah. Probably
0: shouldn't burn down a national forest. <laughs> exactly. Right. No. Well, that's what I'm trying. No to Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, yeah. No. But no. But.
1: Thank you, Alan. I just like that uh. you clarified. <laughs> oh man. Um, so number two, large-bodied mammal communities. This can be both wild and domestic. Like obviously, large-bodied domestic mammals have a big impact too. Mm-hmm. Like, what if we just let them eat grass fuel and let them trample? woody plants like that's pretty neat we could do that um and this is super effective at limiting woody encroachment in the dry low rainfall places so yeah just you know let mother nature take its course by crushing trees to the ground
2: now with- or
1: eating babies you know uh, baby trees
2: <laughs> <laughs> again good to clarify <laughs> okay
0: we have had episodes about eating baby animals yeah oh for sure clarification
2: for sure (laughs) um okay so with now i mean as people who have advocated for or at least understand the you know regulatory environment of north america (laughs) how easy is it to like what? What are, I know, the attitudes are very different in Africa. Like, I mean, yeah. for example, the attitudes towards elephants are very different in Africa. Like, especially you know, uh, like between you know, uh, farmers mm-hmm. and landowners, because like you said, yeah. Elephants do a number on stuff. Okay, <laughs> yeah, like they, right. Like they will smash your fences and wreck your crops. So it's like, easy
1: for me to be very like pro elephant when we're talking about like destroying trees and not yeah. human property. Like right. that's a very good point. Yeah, and, like there's
2: there's a lot of I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of conflicts there and they're and they're very probably very different than the ones we would have here. Um, I guess I did want to ask though, how large herbivore cultivation or uh, how feasible is that? 'Cause like, I mean, you could you could say you could do the same thing here in North America, like, mm-hmm. but you can't really reintroduce the bison anymore. Like you yeah. can't like, you know, they're they're unfortunately like kind of ecologically extinct. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. you couldn't bring them back in a way that would matter. Yeah. Could you do that with large African uh herbivores? Yeah, well
1: I think what's interesting is that maybe there's like a little bit of a difference here in like the degree to which human settlement has like really encroached on habitats like we are concerned about fragmentation of habitats in africa but Mm. it's certainly not the top concern um whereas i feel like that's more and more like the top concern of north american ecology and um i think another interesting component of this that we haven't really talked about but definitely influences wild animals is that there is a pretty significant poaching problem in Africa mm-hmm. and I point that out like it's like a novel concept because I think you know wildlife biologists we we from North America anyway like our hunting environment is so different where you know poaching isn't really like a significant problem threat to any animals really anymore oh yeah for sure um but it is absolutely a threat in those specific environments and so i think uh restoring wild populations is probably a little bit easier in terms of land use but difficult because of poaching and you know protecting those resources um Because again, like a huge part of the African economy in the Savannah regions has to do with wildlife tourism and hunting of those animals too. So, um, you know, I'm not 100% sure that I'm qualified in this moment to speak on like the lay people's attitude toward wildlife conservation or how they would be impacted because I didn't really do a lot of research on that. Mm -hmm. All I know is that the authors of this paper and the folks who have cited them um, are advocating for policy change. Mm-hmm. Because as we're developing more lands, there are ways to develop it and to expand human population and to allow humans to have like a good sustainable life. That will have the least impact on wildlife around them, and will still allow for us to expand wildlife habitats and stuff like that. Possibility exists in a really material way. What was your original question?
2: <laughs> it, it was just like I mean, the feasibility of these proposals. Yeah, like it, it, it like you know, the, obviously these are I mean qualified. Yeah. Like intergovernmental, you know, panel sort of people who know what the yeah. what they're dealing with but well, so and like
1: it's it's so hard to say cause i think it is a thing that does seem feasible and my impression is that the primary roadblock is education on what is needed to preserve the landscapes and in terms of like wild animal conservation being willing to not develop certain regions to maintain undisturbed tracts of land they're unfragmented mm-hmm. and also like trying to limit poaching of those large charismatic megafauna if that makes sense
2: no yeah okay. for sure i mean and i mean yeah i, I was just curious because like i mean it's something it is something that i you know it's an interesting question like how different are the attitudes and and what are the the challenges that you would face mm-hmm. i mean it's because it, it is completely different
0: mm-hmm. yeah and
2: i mean you know we also have to remember that like I guess in other parts of the world, not North America, but in other parts of the world, uh, climate change is treated as an existential crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, this could be economically and, you know, uh, existentially like devastating, de- devastating to the yeah. people who live here. Whereas in North America, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah. it'll be fine. Yeah. Or, you know, Mm-hmm. It's
1: not or real. it's
2: or it's not real, <laughs> you know. So like you know, w- yeah. we're still managing that hurdle, but in other places, yeah. it's like a completely different situation. Absolutely. Yes,
1: and so I think you know this. This paper is really focusing on like um, the perspectives of policymakers and land managers who have like maybe some uh, decision-making capability. And I think it's fair to say that like no matter where you are, like people are concerned about their own survival probably first and foremost. But I think there's also a really deep love of the land that you're living in. And so it's all wildlife management is really just balancing like the needs of people to thrive and have like a good and sustainable life with the needs of the environment. And um, I think that's why I found this paper so compelling too, is because they were trying to really advocate for having these healthy ecosystems maintained being a direct benefit to people, yeah. Yeah. which is so hard to get through to like anybody who is trying to do good conservation or or rather doesn't, you know, care about conservation or is, you know, struggling to figure out how to like feed their community and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's – but there is a balance that can be made and i imagine it varies on people most like well, like it is sure. here Yeah, so mm-hmm. individuals and the different needs of local communities i think that's also why i think it's important that we're emphasizing more local policies based on local ecosystems because that also will help local communities meet their specific needs and not just mm-hmm. trying to apply a blanket policy to everything across an entire continent of people. Like, no, absolutely. let this community in this ecosystem have the best tools they need to work with the land that they're living in. Like, mm-hmm. for sure, that's what we yeah. should all be doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: No, that makes a lot of sense. I, that is very cool that they're like, you know, yeah, drilling down to, yeah, not like a, yeah, not like you said, not blanket solutions, but like, what can this community do for its own yeah. savanna?
1: What are your plant's functional traits, and how can you use that against climate change? It's cool. It is. It it's really is. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I guess the all, the last little point has to do with the landscapes being unfragmented, which is pretty straightforward. But especially, you know, in a landscape is trying to make room for so many like huge animals that it's especially important to try and decrease fragmentation which I mean can be like done if you're developing new places you know it's a matter of sticking you know to developing like a specific place and not really spreading out too much there is absolutely a threshold under which a patch of land in these Environments becomes too small to be ecologically beneficial. So, ultimate goal is let's try to stop that from happening, so that the savanna can remain like big enough to support fire management and herbivory, and you know everything that it's doing for uh, fire and food management, water, water and food management, etc. Okay, cool. So, in summary
2: burn trees cut no cut down trees yeah also start fires Mm -hmm. stomp on plants
1: stomp on plants
2: (laughs) be an elephant
1: be be an elephant um make room
2: for elephants exactly don't put barbed wire fence around every single square mile of your you know uh landscape Mm -hmm. forever yes
1: um yeah okay uh so these savanna ecosystems provide essential services and in order for people to keep on being people in these landscapes everywhere. You know, we gotta preserve the ecosystems so that we can keep on living our lives. And uh, in order to do that, we need more research into specific areas that increase our understanding of how these ecosystems actually function to give us better management strategies on a local level with those plant communities and all their mitigation strategies and we have to have better management policies at local levels and you know what we're starting with please let us cut down some trees so i think we can <laughs> we can make we can get there i think we can that make that should happen be an easy
2: sell right yeah
1: for sure yeah um and yeah
0: thank you rachel for enlightening us just a little bit about uh the african
1: savannas yeah, well, it was a little overview. So the next time we talk about it, we're going to have so much context. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. It's going to be soon.
1: Oh, I should do a full-on elephant episode now. This is something. I'm Dibs. Okay. Okay.
2: Dibs has been called.
1: Fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> Elephants are very fun.
0: Okay. <laughs> and thank you uh, for listening. The Best Biome is produced through our nonprofit and Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions, fan mail, or hate mail. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, tell your friends about us and leave a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We couldn't do this without your support. See you again very soon.
2: Bye! Bye!